This is Season 5, Episode 10, Walking Them Home with Death Doula Zenith Farago. To be honest, I put off sharing this episode for a long time. I recorded it way back at the beginning of the year, and then I was still recovering from the death of our beloved dog, Chester. Little did I know that just a couple of weeks after recording this conversation, I experienced a miscarriage and the loss of our third baby. I am so grateful for this conversation. It felt like a deep insight into what I was about to experience and the ways in which I was met and not met during that experience. I hope you enjoyed and you get something out of it. Zenith is such a deep wellspring of courage and of energy and of deep wisdom around what living well means. And I really felt like it was the time to share it mostly because of what's happening in the world around us, but also as a way of completing a cycle of my own grief. I hope you enjoy. Here's my chat with Zenith. Zenith, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Meg. Really wonderful to have you on. I, I think I said in my email, um, I saw you last year at Seven Sisters and then been following your work for a little while since then and um, just really, really curious to see where our conversation takes us today. Um, but I'd love to start. I know you've been travelling, but I'm wondering what's captivating you about life at the moment? What are you curious about? What are you engaging with? Well, fortunately, my personality really loves people. I find people fascinating. And now I spend most of my time traveling and teaching about death and dying. So I'm meeting groups of really incredible people with diverse experiences, but with a hunger to find out more about the practicalities, about the language, about emotions, about being of service to people. And we have these very intimate three-day connections together, which end in a small ceremony. And then I wave them goodbye and often I never see them again. But I just love how deep you can go in those three days. And, And also for me, it's about setting that knowledge free. And as an elder, it's very satisfying to have lived a great life and be now doing something that still is in service and still of benefit to others. But watching that ripple out and not, I know that I'll never see the results of that. But um, so I'm, I'm sort of curious, but I'm sort of in a place of wonder and delight Uh, more than curiosity I'm afraid because I'm not curious about much anymore I'm just in the in the pure bliss of life that's and death Mm, I love that and I think it's something I love that you 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 brought in the the concept of eldership um, immediately because it's something that more than even listening to what you were saying when I first came into relationship with you I was just captivated by the presence of eldership and and you exploring that a little more around um 
around what that meant and how, you know, culturally we can start to move toward those rites of passage where we can move into eldership. And it was really this quality of presence about you that um, I was captivated by. And I was thinking, even explaining it now, it's difficult, but I was thinking about that concept of being in awe and rapture and really knowing having lived a great life and that that is the quality that I think you embody. But I wonder whether you, having been around other elders and being taught by them yourself, how you would articulate that quality of eldership and presence and joy and, yeah, I'm just curious how you would name that. Uh, well, it's, it's, a, it's a bit difficult to name, but I think it's just much better to embody it. And, and I think we all know that when we meet someone who is embodying um, qualities that we appreciate or aspire to and are fully authentic in that, there's, there's a great attraction and an appeal. And when I was younger, I spent a lot of my time finding what I considered to be great wisdom teachers so I could sit in their presence, listen to what they had to say. But I found invariably that the most beneficial experience was to have a transmission from them. And I found just by either engaging with them on a very close, intimate level, which life seemed to offer me those opportunities, I found myself up a mountain in India the Dalai Lama came along. I had a small interaction with him and I was sort of never the same again. And, and then I found myself in France and I had a very similar experience with Thich Nhat Hanh, the great Buddhist uh, master. And then more recently I was in Hawaii with Ram Dass and had, you know, the opportunity to put my forehead to his and you know, got this massive sort of download. And it's a, and what I feel is that if I'm fortunate to be in their presence, they give that energetic transmission to me. And I am then trying to offer that to anyone who's in my radius, because you don't always get to, you know, share foreheads with each other or even shake hands. But I'm trying to you know, disseminate that uh, energy that I can't even put a name to in podcasts like this, in public talks we've just done over the weekend, in the teachings that I'm delivering, which are very practical, but there's a sort of magic at play all the time in the world. And I think one of the great lessons in life that I've learned is about how to catch that wave when the universe offers it to you to make whatever you're doing much easier because you've got um, a propulsion behind you. You've, you're in sync or in flow or whatever the common modern language for that is. But it just makes it effortless and it's so much easier to be doing whatever you're doing if you're riding that wave and the universe is supporting you. And... Um, I just think that when you meet someone who who embodies something that you you don't even need to understand it, you just know that 
you want to be in their presence because they have something to offer you. And that, you know, is one of not to miss that if you, if you find, and most people can just be very ordinary people, but something in you wakes up. They wake something up and you meet them in that, in that inner place. Mm. I'm not sure if that's the answer to that question. No, it is. It is because it, (laughs) like, it just opens up another door. I think that 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 explanation, just as I was feeling that in my body and and looking outside as I was listening, it was really heart opening. And when you were describing that propulsion forward um, and it being easeful, I feel like a lot of your work around death and dying, to me, it's a relational body of work. It's about relationship and um, exploring at a very vulnerable time those relationships and I guess how how healthy or intact or all the nuances and complexities, not even to label them as good or bad, come to the surface. And for me, I'm so curious about how culturally we can move toward a place. I mean, I I call it regenerative relationship. What are the quality of relationships that we can cultivate in order to feel that common humanity with all of its with all of its textures, you know, and how can we remain connected? How can we keep that sliver and that thread of connection alive? And as you were talking, it was reminding me of um, the, the quality that I was trying to explain and then you beautifully opened up even further is, is it's an absence to me of fear um, that allows a heart opening in the other um, because then in the absence of that fear or shame or all of the armoring that I think we, we accumulate, you can find that pulse of connection. So you feel inherently connected to that being because they're not afraid. And I'm just wondering how, how you see death and dying as, as a relational kind of experience and, what you've learned about relationships through exploring and teaching and having conversations about this this piece of work or this part of life, should I say? Hmm. Well, that's very difficult to put into one answer to that <laughs> question. But I think one of the biggest things is that it's a sort of dance and dying is an inside job. So it's not about what's happening on the outside, it's not about what environment you're in. And so first of all, I think it really is for people to work out who or what they are. So, and that can be a lifetime's journey or some people get it really quickly when they're young or in the middle somewhere. But for me, I think the easiest way to say, so summing up, my experiences and some of these weren't what I believed when I started that work or um, I didn't grow up with a religious or spiritual uh, childhood. I just was free to work out what I wanted. And But what I really see now is that, you know, we're an energy, which are very, is a very common belief now, but um, is, and that we're in, we live in a body but we are not our mind. We are not 
our nervous system. We are not our emotions. These are all things that are an alchemy that lives inside our physical body. So we know that the physical body dies. We know that uh, the mind will die. And so there's a fear and a contraction because the mind is totally dependent on the body staying alive. So the mind will drive us to, to try and stay alive, to have medical intervention, all of that. But it's a practice and meditation is great. You know, pleasure is great. Lots of things, you know, sitting at the ocean is great for calming ourselves and controlling our mind so that when we're faced with someone who we love who is dying or someone who we love who dies suddenly or our own imminent death, that instead of contracting into fear, we can expand into love. And we find that expansion when we fall in love with people. We find that expansion, in fact, when we're engaged sexually with someone and we are merging with the other and we are also expanding outside of our physical bodies. And so to be in relationship in a healthy way with ourselves around our own death, our own mortality, our own vulnerability in life and in death then allows us to really meet someone else in that place. And so a lot of people are very drawn to exploring death and dying because they think they've got a calling or they think they want to work with others. But death is one of the most profound experiences to be in for, for yourself and also accompany someone else who's dying because you really know you're alive when you're looking at death either in the bed or at the kitchen table or on the side of the road. You are fully alive in those moments because everything is is firing and and then emotions and connection kicks in and our connection to that person. But it's really worth I think spending, you know, a cup of tea a day, a cup of coffee a day, a quiet moment, instead of meditating, to reflect on that you might die at any moment. Are things in order? Someone else you love, especially children, may die today and how that will be for you. And it's sort of like strengthening a muscle of familiarity and then of resilience. And then you've got a chance of being in those experiences fully and, and being of assistance to others, but also being of assistance to yourself. So that's where I'm coming from all the time in all my interactions with anybody. I'm trying to embody what it means to be expanded, to be fearless, as you say, about dying. But it's only because my familiarity with all, those, with all those people who have died and their families and my own inner work has given me this rich understanding and that, um, that not knowing has been replaced by willingness 
to, to be fully present to whatever it is that's coming in myself and my own life, but also with everyone that I interact with. And people seem to find that interesting. They seem to find it provocative for them to to go deeper into their own inner world, whatever that might be for them. Thank you for that description. It was... Um I love that idea of expand of expanding and you touched on how that willingness allows us access to aliveness and I wonder does that mean that excluding death or not looking or not preparing or not kind of turning away is is the body movement my body's doing as I describe it is that culturally excluding that um, does that mean that we're not fully alive or what do you see kind of the, the individual or collective ramifications of that we don't include it or we, we aren't prepared for it or that we don't want to talk about it or look at it? How do you see that manifesting, do you think? Oh, I think we all know what that looks like. You know, we, we see people who are terrified of, of a range of experiences but but, the, but I also see an incredible amount of courage. And when you're really having to deal with it, when someone you love is dying or has died and you can't look away because life is calling you to that moment, what I see over and over again over many years is the people that, that are totally... I just have to put my phone. You'll have to edit this. Um, let me just put that on the airplane. I'm sorry about that. Um, let me see. So what I find over and over again, over many years, with people who really explore death, it totally enriches their lives, whether that's before they're dying or during their dying. But people who want to know what might happen, they want to get their affairs in order, they want to have those conversations with their families, they want to die the very best they can, they want to take care of their loved ones in those experiences that something magical transforms for them. And it's sort of, it's a courage and it's a familiarity. And, I mean, we all need to grow courage in our lives and in our deaths. And you may know that the word courage comes from core, which it means for the heart. So that we're, you know, acting from a heart place and, I just used this in a conversation last night where I was saying that it's our heart right to be with those that we love and to take care of them in a continuous care so that we are looking, accompanying them in their dying, but we are caring for their body when they die and we are creating ceremony that is rich and meaningful for the people that are left behind in order to 
live on without that person physically in their lives and to get the gifts that that death has to offer them. And, you know, death is an incredible teacher. And anybody who's listening who has had that experience of um, someone they love has died, they will know it can either crack you open to deeper and previously unknown thoughts and feelings and actions or it will take you to your knees but it can do you can do both of those in the same day and it's a journey of exploration but if we didn't have death our lives would be less because it it offers us great opportunity for change and sometimes those things happen because someone has a diagnosis but it often happens when we take stock of our own lives because someone we love has died, whether they're young or old, whether they're a relative or a friend. And, you know, I, I just love what death has to offer us. That's, that's, yeah, it's our biggest teacher and we need to befriend it and let it, because it is accompanying us Every day it's omnipresent. It can happen at any moment. And so to be ready for that is one of the greatest gifts that you can give to the people that love you. Mm. Because if they know that you're ready, they have no option but to process that and work with it and not, so it won't destroy them. Mm. It's so um, interesting as you're talking, I was thinking about the intergenerational patterns of grief and how they're kind of passed down familiarly. And um, I had a recent experience at the end of last year that really speaks to what you're talking about in terms of the lessons where I had a, a pet unexpectedly and quite traumatically pass away. And um, I, it was the first time in 35 years that I allowed, well, it's probably since I was a baby, my my mother to hold me because she was there when I found out. And I um I really, I really let it move my body and the shock mm. and and to be in that in in a family where traditionally we cope with grief through shame and blame and avoidance mm. um, was such a beautifully connective thing. And she she came back after a couple of days and she said, and how are you feeling about the dog? And I said, um, it's just going to take some time, Mum. And she mm. said, and she said, yeah, I really get that. Sometimes these things just take time. It's the first time in our relationship she'd ever acknowledged that feelings can take time to pass. But really it taught me so much about that contraction and expansion and the dance between the two of wanting to blame and wanting to go into that contraction that never really allows those lessons and wisdom to be carried through the body and to be acknowledged collectively and then to really move into those deeper states of opening up to the grief and being moved by it and, you know, on, on your knees in the shower with your friends, with your loved ones, um, heart-openingly crying together, you know, how it's almost like this wave that carries you to places you've never been. And I think that 
I can, I really, I really can see how, it's why I wanted to have this conversation, how in an instant it can connect what's been disconnected. It can bring back together what's been separated if we allow ourselves um, the permission to, to, I guess, fall apart, which culturally we're not um, terribly good at either. But I'm curious in terms of, I've heard you say before the best thing we can give those that are that are dying or to be with families or friends that have diagnosis is to come with presence but not coming with a story or attachment or agenda, not coming with an idea that it's a tragedy, um, not coming with a pre, I get with, with our own story of what's happening. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because to me that's so profound in so many ways, not just in death and dying but in relationship as well? Sure. I find the easiest way to address that is just to say that you come to that situation present, but you also come neutral so that you're not caught in the past, you're not caught in the present, uh, sorry, you're not caught in the future about what's going to happen or what should be happening or all the things that aren't going to happen, that you are just present and neutral with that person and then you meet them where they're at because it's happening to them. You're having your own journey as the accompanier or as the whatever relationship you have with them and you're also going to be left behind if you see it that way, that's, you know, some people see it that way, or those that live on. And it's just a really great skill to master because for some people they don't want to be swamped by someone's, you know, grief blanket or someone's pity blanket and wrapped up in that and weighed down by it. They just want to be able to explore what what they're feeling in every moment and that can change and they can be you know sobbing in one minute and laughing in another but you can't overlay your story onto them because sometimes it's just so hard for them to be in that experience they don't need other people's distress to deal with and it doesn't mean you come with this sort of face that's expressionless or this body that uh, is is not meeting them, and that's it's like a dance. But you have to you have to find their rhythm and their timing. You can't impose yours onto them. And one of the hardest things to watch is when you've got young parents and what, a child has died, and all the other young parents in their you know in their community or their friendship group are so terrified that that might happen to their children that they are just swamping those parents with their own distress, with their, the, the distress of that that might happen to their children. But it isn't happening to their children right now. And that, that family are doing their best to be in that situation and they don't need other people's uh, blank. I just see it like those big grey 
heavy, like yoga blankets, but years ago they used to be even heavier, and they're thick woolly blankets, and they weigh they weigh you down, and and that's sort of what you see people doing, trying to, and it's almost like a smothering, and or it's it, it has the image of being in white water, where you're being thrown around, it's choppy, and you're just trying to keep your head above water and not get sucked under. And sometimes at ceremony, at the funeral ceremony, when I'm watching the people who are affected by that death come to that particular family or partner, uh, and it's, oh, my God, it's heartbreaking, as if it's not hard enough already. And some people will... Um, give that person energy and they will, you know, um, replenish what they're feeling and other people will suck that energy out of them with, oh, my God, this is so terrible. And once you start to watch that, it's a really great lesson in, in how you want to be meeting that person, dancing with them, in their either in their diagnosis, in their dying, or in their bereavement, if if they're a family and someone has died, and the more sort of it doesn't mean you don't have to feel your own feelings. It just means you don't have to smother them or merge with them. That you have some respect for what they are feeling and how difficult that process is, and language has a lot to do with that because you can never know what someone else is feeling. So you don't say, oh, my God, I know how you must be feeling. You don't. And sometimes there's the opposite, which is just that trite line that people feel it's very safe to say, which is, I'm sorry for your loss. And if you're just saying that because you think, oh, that's a good line, I'll say that, that makes me able to be with that person. But really, if you're present and you're neutral and you see them, some just pay attention to what arises and speak from that place. But, but the bottom line is that you can't say anything that needs those people to have to look after you or make you feel better. And, you know, that's a really useful thing for people to get and to think about. And again, these things are great to think about in advance and embody that so that when you find yourself unexpectedly in a situation with people who are dying or are newly bereaved when someone has died, then you've got something to support you in those situations because you've, you've, you've been able to sit with it in a calm, quiet way or even have a dinner party about it with friends and talk about it madly over over wine and good food uh and and see you know and throw it around together and listen to other people's experience that isn't so raw and what worked for them and what didn't work and you know this is how we learn we learn from our own uh thoughts but we also learn in conversation with others and and they're intimate conversations to have with people. Thank you. I love that concept of finding their rhythm. <clears throat> it's so such a beautiful way to put it. And how how in order to do that, we need to have that resilience, I guess, to be able to meet 
the unknown, whatever is going to be there on that day and how I can really see that marrying of that inner work with then that work in relationship to be able to say I'm I can be present and neutral with whatever's here today because I'm digesting and metabolizing my own stuff on the way yeah the rhythm rhythm is really a beautiful way to put it um I know you've sat with so many families and so many folks who are dying and I know you probably get asked this a lot but I am so curious haven't had anyone really close to me um, in my immediate family past for many, many years now. So it's not something I'm familiar with these conversations. And I would really love to know in speaking with those that are dying, I'm sure there's a whole range of things that come up, but are there patterns or themes or um, longings for how they wish their loved ones to be or reflections on their lives or are there any patterns or themes in that that come up that you've noticed or is it as diverse as human beings are in those moments yes it's it's as diverse as you could possibly imagine so there's a sort of an equation about you know who people are how they've lived who they're connected to and how they're dying gives a response in each situation. And the same is true for us who are accompanying them. It'll be who they are and how they die, who we are, our relationship to them and our familiarity with death will give us a different response each time. And so even for me, I've spent 25 years working with people who are dying with death, sudden death, family. And then recently, just under two years ago, a really close friend of mine died unexpectedly. And it broke me open in a way that I I just didn't see coming. And uh, I was so grateful for that. I mean, I wouldn't have wished it to happen. But it just, it's, manif- it's love made manifest. And... And some, but the opposite is sometimes true where we're really glad that person is dying, either because we don't like them and they've made our life a misery, or, or we want their suffering to end because it's very hard to watch someone that you love suffering and lingering on when, and you know, that happens a lot with old people, especially people with dementia as well now, where they're not the person that you knew and loved they're they're still looking like that person but their personality their life force that interaction that you've had with them they don't even know who you are anymore and that can be very uh distressing for people so it's really it's really different and that's why these these are the concepts that i'm trying to explain to people is presence whatever that looks like for you neutrality so that you you are not judging that as good or bad um kindness to bring kindness to that situation and then to respond to to who or what is in front of you and so there is no tick list of things to say and and you're if you just bring your own 
authentic self and your life experience to that part, bearing in mind you, they, you can't expect them to make you feel better. But sometimes people do actually make you feel better because they can see your pain and suffering and they may be okay with it. But some people are furious that they're dying. They're, they're angry at life. They're angry that other people aren't dying. And so you really have to meet them where they're at. There is no one way to be. There's no, you know, there's no, yeah, you just have to be present to, to who's in front of you and how they're feeling and be courageous with that. Mm, thank you. I, um, I wanted to finish up by just asking you about identity. I mean, you touched on it then about personality, and but I'm curious more in terms of the inverse to death, um, my experiences of birth and, um, you know, I'm currently pregnant with my third child and my identity has become this nebulous form again of, you know, being in the caterpillar mush of transformation and um, and my experience of birth is the same, uh, where it is an expansion energetically, but it feels like you're losing the grasp of identity as we spend our lives trying to bed down and construct and put boundaries around and mm. name and all of those things. And so I guess I'm curious whether death is the same, whether in that liberation, in that expansion, in that return to love or however you want to express it, those things that we spend so much of our life cultivating become rather unimportant and if so you know having worked with death and dying for so many years and been in these conversations it just strikes me that you're not just an enormous um source of wisdom on death and dying but also on life and living and if um, you have any advice of how we can cultivate those states of expansion while we're still alive and um how we can be more okay with those nebulous states of unknowing and just be more present and uh, attuned to what's in front of us, as you say? Mm, well, I, I think it's, again, it's, it's a different, there are different pathways for different people. So, for example, for some people it will be through uh, plant medicine. That's a great expander of mind and consciousness and awareness um, for some people, it may be, you know, being with friends. It may be laying down, uh, you know, on grass, looking at the sky, at the magnificence of clouds or laying under a tree. I mean, nature is a really great uh, way to commune with life, death and everything in between and in a circular uh, experience and you know you were just talking about the death of your dog and you know animals are really great teachers for us about big intense experiences because exactly what you're saying is that you know people there are no rules around animals people don't seem to care that you're absolutely bereft and they can comfort you easier they don't say oh you know you need to get over that they they let you be in that and 
for some people it will be meditation, for some people it will be reading countless uh, books and or listening to podcasts, people t- talking like me. And sometimes in each one you'll get one gem, you'll get one seed that plants itself. And I think you have to just find the best way for you, just like we all find our best way through life. But but when they offer themselves, and sometimes it's the hard things, is is to just say, I'm going to feel the fear and I'm going to do it anyway. And it might be like knocking on someone's door or ringing someone up to see how they are or exploring something else that fearful I mean extreme sports are a great uh, invitation into becoming familiar with death and it's you know surfing anything like that anything that makes you feel fully alive is a great introduction to death sex drugs partying quietness uh, you know aloneness anything really <laughs> I love it it's such a it's such a good way it's such a beautiful invitation to end to end the conversation that um, yeah. that gives folks so much permission to to trust those uh, instincts within that are that are always pulling us toward living and life um, and then also in the same breath mm. death death and dying so um, as a final question Zena, I was just love to hear uh, I think I, I have so much hope that through ceremony and rites of passage and conversations like this and elders like you that um, there's a generation of embodied leaders who uh, embrace middle age and beyond uh, knowing that they have a responsibility as elders uh, and guiding the next generation um, and setting the wisdom free, as you say. How mm. can we move toward that with openness in a culture that um, doesn't value eldership and ageing? How, how do we as, how do we, how do we embrace eldership and how, um, yeah, I'd just be curious about that. So I will probably say that, you know, it's a lifetime's journey, but often you meet young people who are elders. It's not necessarily about age. There are some, you know, that we've got some great people on the planet at the moment who are only, you know, under 30, but are carrying a body of wisdom that is is available to them, available to all of us. So, but we're living in a culture, you know, that worships youth and especially for women is, is about fake beauty and... So I I won't go off on that tangent, but I really think that thing of just being who you are, loving your physicalness, whatever that might be, especially if it's healthy and functioning, because some people are born in bodies that don't do that and minds that don't do that. So it's really about the simplicity of what you have, what's available to you, and to to be... trying to become the best person you can be, the most natural person you can be on the inside and the outside, to be of benefit of others, 
And when it comes to age, it's sort of pretty simple. You're either old or you're dead. So I don't have, even though I'm sort of, you know, I'm, I'm very respectful to lots of people and in conversation, and, but I don't actually personally have a lot of time for someone if I'm in my personal life, if I'm at a party or somewhere and someone is doing a whole number about, oh, I'm not old, you know, I, I just generally won't, I don't want to talk to someone because it's an, I'm burying children, I'm burying young people. And so age is an incredible privilege to live a long life through all those different stages, to, to mature into something, you know, very beautiful where you've, you know, you've been a young person, you've been a person of middle age, you've, you know, whatever ages you're living through and whatever, you know, being a parent, uh, you know, not being a parent, uh, you know, being a friend, being in relationship with others, all those are rich life experiences. You don't actually have to win a medal. You don't have to um, succeed at something. You just have to live a full, authentic life for however long that lasts. And that is really the very best thing you can do. And if you get to be old, like me in my 60s, and you can look back and think, well, you know, I've, I've just lived that the best. I've upset a lot of people. I've done some things that weren't so great that I wouldn't do again. But I've learned from those experiences and I've rolled them into something that now I feel very satisfied about. It doesn't mean I still won't mess up and I still won't say outrageous things that upset people. But I'm not deliberately engaged in in um, any of those. So, you know, I'm just trying to become the best person I can be. I'm loving being old. I'm loving, and, and but that's the thing about getting old. You know that you've crossed the tipping point. So I think at about 45, you are, you, you are closer to death than you are to birth. And it can come at any time. So any time after 45, you need to be really starting to look into, I could die at any time because a lot of people don't even make 45. So it's really just about being the very best person you can be and, and whatever your life offers you in that way. And it's different for everyone. Thank you. It's really, um, yeah, lots of, lots of tears and, and, and reminders of, I love the word satisfied, you know, such a visceral experience of satisfaction and being satiated by life, you know, and I Mm. think that I I really believe the more we can deconstruct this idea that a a good life is a life that, that is in the very small spectrum of what we're shown to be success in air quotes and instead expand into the richness of opportunity that already is here and relationship that is already here to explore that that Mm. to me is regenerative. That to me is, um, is also culture changing. It's rebellious. It's revolutionary to say my, my life has meaning and value and worth regardless of what it looks like and how it conforms to this very narrow ideal of what we're taught and how Mm. liberatory that is, you know. I think it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, very beautiful. And you're doing great work. Thank you. 
and 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 having babies amazing <laughs> it's been well um, it's been this this third child has been an extraordinary teacher in how the first trimester is is so interesting to me culturally of of what it comes laden with and um it's really been a process of really deconstructing and decolonizing that and realizing that um that what I'm doing has enormous uh merit should I say which is not something that culturally I I embodied the first two times is um Mm. is to is to really place reverence around it and to know that no matter what happens that it's still meaningful and it's still important and it's still life finding its way and how we can honor that just like what you're saying about death it's really been yeah transformative so Mm. yeah yeah Thank you, Zana. Mm. Thank you. Thanks Thank for you. the rich conversation. I'm sure everyone will get so much out of it. Mm.